Hey, 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 everybody. Chris here, and we have got a great show for you. Darren's been on a field trip and lived to tell about it. We get all moony-eyed for Saga, the long-running and still excellent sci-fi comic series. We've each seen a movie about not-quite-dead people. I found the Netflix film Cargo to be a nice departure from the standard zombie formula, and Darren sings the praises of Pixar's Coco. Then I hand in my top three assignment and name my favorite animated movies. Will it be the Emoji Movie or Smurfs 2? Possibly neither. You'll have to listen to find out on episode 18 of Totally Sort Of. Totally sort of the podcast. It's sort of like a review show and totally like catching up with your best friend. I'm Darren. And I'm Chris. We'll let you know what you totally need to check out and what is sort of worth skipping. So how was your week, my friend? It was uh, busy. Coming back from vacation, have to catch up for everything, and then a two-day music festival in the weekend afterwards that I had to get everything organized so I could disappear for the weekend. A lot of hard work to have fun, eh? It is. <laughs> so how was, uh, so this was field trip, I believe? Yeah, this was field trip. I guess it's really the only remaining downtown Toronto music festival. There used to be a couple that I liked. This is the last one that's still surviving. So this is at Fort York? I have a picture that I'll post that's just great. Like at night when you are in this area that's the old Fort York, which is sort of a historic late 1700s early 1800s fort Mm -hmm. and it's surrounded by grass and trees because it's been turned into a museum and a park and so you're in what feels like a fielded sort of grassy area but when the lights go when it gets dark you realize you're like you're you're in basically a skyscraper canyon and the cn tower is coming up behind the stage and it's all lit up these days it's just like man it's just nice to cool have an urban festival that feels like you're in a natural surrounding couple days there uh one or two highlight bands for you i want to talk about a couple of them Uh, i saw deer take again nice i saw they were on the lineup we talked about earlier and it's interesting they because they're on the same tour and we just saw them a month ago but we saw like the two and a half hour version of this show right and at field trip they're doing a one hour set so it was interesting the sort of condensed version of the same tour that we saw cool i've said it before i absolutely love that band and i don't know i don't know what it is about their live shows but i just love the way they perform it's not like they do all kinds of stage antics or anything Mm -hmm. but The lead singer, I really like uh, John J. McCauley, and there was a really nice moment in the show where he talked about in the next couple months, they're hitting their 14-year anniversary as a band together. Wow. And talked about, you know, this was right before the end, and so he went back and said, you know, and so I want to take you back to our first album, which is like my absolute favorite Deer Tick album. It's called War Elephant. It's from 2007. And said, you know, 
this is the song that started it all for us and played this song called Ashamed that is definitively my favorite Deer Tick song and probably one of my favorite songs of all time. I don't know, it's nice when a band sort of goes, this is the the song. And I think every time I've seen them, they've played it. Mm -hmm. That like, this is the song that started it for us and we still play it and we still love it and you guys love it. It's a nice thing. As opposed to like the bands that are like, "Uh, we have to play the popular song. Exactly. I'm not really the biggest Coldplay fan anymore, but I love the first two Coldplay albums. And I saw them on the second tour, the Russia Blood to the Head tour, when Yellow was still... Yeah, huge. And they did. he did the same sort of thing when he introduced it, said something along the lines of, like, people always ask me, do you get sick of playing this song? And he said, I'll never get sick of playing this song. If it wasn't for this song, I wouldn't be standing here on stage. We wouldn't be into our second tour. We wouldn't be playing in giant stadiums like this. Like, I'll play this song anytime. Nice. That's kind of a nice thing. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, who else? New music that I heard that I liked, a band called Ruben in the Dark. Okay. I'd never heard them before. They were really, really good. Uh, I like to, to try and hit at least a couple of bands that I don't really know. Cool. Most of the rest was picking bands that I really like, always. Japan Droids, the Bar Brothers, Bahamas. I'll talk about the two headliners just briefly. Sure. Saturday night, the headliner was Metric. I don't know how I feel about Metric, really. I don't dislike them. Yeah. Whenever I think of Metric, I think about what I will describe as that god-awful, horrible song, Monster Hospital, (laughs) where she just repeats that line, I fought the war over and over and over again until I just want to scream. I know that every time somebody mentions Metric or I think about Metric, that's the song I think about. Yeah. And so I think, I don't really like Metric. But this uh, tour they're doing, I don't know why, they just picked a random album to do, like, we're going to do a playthrough of this. It's like their fourth album. It's 2009, so it's not really an anniversary or anything. Yeah. And it's a really good album. What what album would that be? The album's called Fantasies. Okay, it's not not one I know. I was thinking while I saw them about the contrast between um, I Fought the War and this song on it called Gimme Sympathy, because every time I hear that I fought the war, or it's called Monster Hospital, yeah. but the line is I fought the war, but the war won. And I always think in repeating that over and over again, you, you think that's some kind of clever line. Like it's like the clashes, <laughs> you know, I fought the yeah. law, but the law won and you, you've made it more clever and just repeat it over and over again. And I'm just like, it's not clever at all. Contrast, there's a song called Gimme Sympathy from the Fantasies album where the line is, uh, after all of this is gone, who would you rather be, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? And that line is yeah. a great line. Like, And so the show kind of helped purge me a little of my <laughs> distaste for Monster Hospital and nice. and the thought that I didn't like Metric because it is quite a good album. The album's Fantasies from 2009 and you may not think you know it, but if you listen through okay. it, you know almost all the songs off of it. So that was the Saturday headliner. The Sunday headliner was the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Oh, really? Uh, man, I didn't know they were there. That You know, there are very few bands that would actually compel me to get out to a show like that and they're one of the ones that would have yeah see i'm gonna go the opposite way because 
We, we've talked a couple times about well, one of the segments we might want to do on the show was sort of things that uh, get more props than they're than they're <laughs> okay. Than they're, okay, I, shatter I my illusions. That, I feel that way about the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. I mean, they have a couple of great songs, but they're sort of these like indie rock darlings. Yeah, and I just don't feel it. I, I appreciate that Karen O is a magnetic presence and she's an important musical figure for a lot of reasons. And there's certainly nothing wrong with them. They just never clicked for you personally. Yeah, either recorded or live. It hmm. just didn't do it for me. I, I appreciate that, that people love them, but that's one of those bands for me that I think they get way more props than are deserving. Well, I'm glad uh, glad you had a good time. I had a couple of uh, a couple of friends at work were down there for that as well. So sounded like an awesome time. Yourself? Did you get up to anything? Uh, well, we have uh, house guests this week, so we were doing a lot of uh, just stuff to get ready for that. And um, we entered a new chapter in the ongoing saga of our heinous money sink of an oven in the kitchen. How did your oven turn into a heinous money sink? This is the second, third oven that we've had uh, since we've lived in the house. And the problem is, when we moved into this place, it had a beautifully refinished kitchen, but they had worked around all of the original 60s, 70s appliances. So we had a built-in wall oven, which is pretty cool, uh, but it's an undersized wall oven, and it's a gas oven. So when the time came about five or six years ago to replace it, to try and find a small gas built-in oven there just aren't very many but we found one we replaced it everything was cool three or four maybe maybe five years later the electrical control panel on the oven went and uh we had a repair guy come in and he tells us yeah well they don't make those anymore period end of story your oven is garbage okay great I guess we'll replace it again. So this time we went out to search for it and we just simply could not find a gas wall oven that was the right size. We had to get one from the States. It was stupidly expensive and it is inferior in every way to the one that preceded it. <laughs> it doesn't... To the to the crappy one they don't even make anymore? It, it, first of all, it was impossible to install. We spent like about three days trying to install it, my brother-in-law and myself. We had to like tear apart all this stuff in behind and saw parts out of the cabinet to get this thing installed. We finally get it installed and it's crap. It's just crap. It doesn't work as well. Uh, it's not as big. It's actually like the walls are thicker. So it's like two inches smaller inside and it was already a, an undersized oven. The broiler is like the size of a toaster oven. So you can't even put like a, a, a tray of French fries in there. And it cost a fortune. So we've hated this thing, but you know, it's an oven, it works. And then we've had it for less than two years and the igniter dies on it. So I get a repair guy out and he's like, yep, it's dead. Uh, I'll have to order you a new one. And he looks it up and he's like, he kind of did one of those like, whoo things as he's as he's googling this part and he's like oh that's just too expensive i gotta phone the office there's that must be a mistake so it was gonna be five hundred dollars to replace this stupid part and uh of an oven that we had just bought at a ridiculous price and don't even like and uh where we stand now is i got did some deep uh googling on the weekend and i managed to find the same part in the states for 60 bucks 
and it looks from YouTube like I can install it myself. So <laughs> if I'm still here in a week or two, you'll know I was successful. I, I was successful right. in installing this thing. I haven't blown us up yet. Anyways, that's that's been my uh, my household drama. Shall we get into some more uh, typical, uh, totally sort of content and talk about our Week in Geek? Sure, let's do the Week in Geek. I think we both wanted to talk about the comic book saga. Yeah, um, I, over the last uh, couple of weeks or a month, uh, got caught up on the last couple of trade paperbacks of Saga. Um, we should probably introduce it briefly for people who haven't read, don't know it, or don't read a lot of comics. Um, Saga is a sci-fi series uh, published in comic form, and it's kind of a Romeo and Juliet story with a lot of really fantastic races and different kinds of sci-fi elements going on. Yeah, I like to think of it as a mix of a grand space opera with a love story and fantasy elements the art is unbelievable it's probably my favorite comic art um, of recent years yeah i'll give fiona staples a shout out for sure for the art in there and it's interesting because i love her work in that book so much but i don't know any of her other work do you i don't know i mean i would think this would be full-time work um, just producing this it, for people who haven't seen it it's really fantastical and yet she has a gift for doing faces that I think very few people can do I mean sometimes comic books even though the art for the genre or for the style is great the characters don't look remarkable whereas she can make a distinct recognizable face even in non-human forms because there are lots of aliens and weird aliens but she can still make them relatable and expressive it's uh, it's an amazing piece yeah i agree so have you uh, are you sort of fully caught up on the series i am i think we should give the creator a shout out too or the writer brian k vaughn yeah it's just enormously creative like you said it kind of mixes a whole bunch of things he writes dialogue and characters really, really well. Yeah, I think so too. It's funny. Initially, I was thinking of kind of critiquing it because the show, the series has always had a lot of sexual content, which initially was kind of like, oh, neat. This is different. It's a little more adult and just kind of surprising to have just fairly graphic and explicit sexual content, but not like pornographic, just it's part of the world the characters are in love and so i i really like that early in the series and when i read the most recent bunch of issues on first pass i kind of felt like there was a little bit of a um after school special syndrome happening which is bringing up topic after topic just so you could say something important about them because they address in some of these recent ones they address like abortion and transgender and i kind of felt like we're starting to get into a cycle of let's bring up a sexual topic and say something about it. There's nothing wrong with that, but I, I felt like it was kind of um, overpowering the main story. I'm going to totally backpedal on that because that was my first reaction just from sitting down and reading a whole bunch of them in, in a couple of sittings. But when I thought about it and looked back through these issues, um, those issues, those sort of, you know, topic topical issues really aren't out of place because there's lots of other sexual content in there that is just kind of low grade or character based or 
you know, they, they're not just shoehorned in. They're actually just part of, if we're going to be talking about sex all the time in terms of all these characters, then sure, we're going to get, we're going to hit on these topics. So it's just interesting to see that, you know, they found a way to talk about these important issues in a fair, in a way that's fair to the story and, and fits in with the overall arc of the story. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. I mean, I definitely noticed that uh, there were more of those issues in the last couple. Mm -hmm. I think I'm with you in that I found, you know, we've been talking about heterosexual sexuality for uh, a lot of issues. It comes up all the time and now we're just meeting characters and talking about different ideas. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think it, uh, it departed from how it fit uh, into the story throughout the first, you know, five volumes of work anyways. I don't know how they, uh, the writer and artist work as a team. The combined creativity of the looks and the, and the concepts that they come up with, um, it's just amazing how, how much personality and interest they give just really, really weird offbeat characters. I just, I'm continually amazed by this. For me, it's that interaction between the artist and the writer that they do things that you just don't see in other books. And the reason I'd put it on, I think we both independently put Saga on the list of things we wanted to talk about without Mm -hmm. talking about why it was going on the list. For me, it was that idea that they do things that you don't see that are, I I think, are brave, creative choices. Uh, And I want to talk about one that's not brave and creative in the, like, socially relevant or, or, you know, big ideas thing. But Mm -hmm. just, uh, you read uh, 7 and 8. So this is at the end of Volume 7. So it's uh, Issue 42. And this is the story arc where they're on that comet mm-hmm. meteor or whatever it is, Fang, which is, it's a world that basically exists on a comet that's blasting its way through space. And it's big enough and has gravity and has an atmosphere and people are living on this comet yeah. that is constantly moving through space. But the people all on the planet believe that they're, uh, there's some great destiny for them. And what they find out is that the destiny is, is this thing's plunging into basically a black hole at the end of its route across the, across the galaxy. But all the people on the planet refuse to believe it because they believe they're, they have some great destiny and that's what this, this comet is going to. And at the end, you know, all of our heroes leave and can't convince all of their friends on the planet to come with them. And the comet plunges into this black hole that they call a time suck and there are six pages at the end of that issue that are just solid black there are six solid black pages at the end of that issue just has this hit of finality but i i can't imagine as a i mean these are seasoned writers and artists but as a as a trying to send to your editor without being a seasoned writer and artist yeah no we're just going to do six pages painted completely black yeah. with no ex- and there's no there's no epilogue to it it's like and then it ended and yeah. flip flip it's black it's black all the way to the back of the book and that's the end of your story i was just really struck by what uh bold and brave sort of creative choice that is to just give you that with 
without then having to go back and explain it or say anything about it. It was just really powerful. Yeah, that twigs a couple things for me. Like, yes, I agree. It was amazingly well done. That feeling of hitting hitting that blackness and knowing that this whole world had died, the, the feeling that that gives you is something that I don't think I would have got from reading this on a tablet. And it's a reminder for me of why I still buy paper comics. I, I, I'll read online comics happily, but uh, I love holding a comic and, and flipping a page. And I don't know, I, I'm not ready to get rid of that tactile component yet. So yeah, that was a great piece to call out. Yeah, so Saga, have heavily recommended uh, book if you want to get into some comics that aren't about superheroes. So Saga was something that we both wanted to talk about. You've seen this movie Cargo, which I know nothing about. Yeah, it was... Um, something that kind of popped up uh, I had been watching a lot of Netflix and had never heard of this film the trailer really grabbed me it's a, a zombie flick but does a lot of things differently so I think there's been a, a trend in zombie movies uh, and TV whatever lately to kind of get bigger and badder and more epic and more grandiose uh, The Walking Dead has been doing a scale of time in terms of how long can they keep a story going and world war z did a scale of you know literally how big can they make the epidemic this one is very much an indie film and very much a small story that doesn't try and do anything big but it i think it really does some things very well so it's uh it's set in australia so it's got a little bit of superficial uh difference to it but some of the things that that it does really uh interestingly one is that they don't explain much they don't give you the origin story they pop in after the outbreak is largely taken hold and some of the things that really worked well for me in terms of this little story it's a very personal story about a family there's no giant hordes there's no armies it's just about a mother, a father, and their baby trying to survive. One thing that it does uh, that really kind of creeped me out was they're kind of scavenging. The world has already fallen apart. They're trying to survive. And they keep coming across these government-issued kits. And these are suicide kits. And the idea of, of this epidemic spreading enough um, slowly enough that people had started to teach each other how to defend against and prevent becoming a zombie was really kind of a neat and creepy idea. I don't want to get too much into anything else that might spoil the movie because it really was not a super outstanding movie, but a really enjoyable different little take on zombies. I think what was really cool about this one is whereas so many zombie movies are about survival and about what would you do how many things would you kill? How horrible a person would you become? It's more about would you have what it takes to kill yourself to save other people? And that's certainly been touched on in, in like The Walking Dead and other things, but that it takes a lot more of a, a thoughtful approach to that. Yeah, it's really got a very powerful finish. Definitely worth checking out some night when you want something just a little bit different. Right on. I mean, that was... Uh, what I enjoyed in the early days of reading The Walking Dead, the comic, was that it was, to a large extent, a human drama with zombies in the background. Yeah. And the, the TV show has always been more zombies in the foreground mm -hmm. than the comic books were. I mean, there's obviously human stories going on, but they were much more... 
the focus in the comics than they are in the TV show. Yeah, and and one other thing um, for for zombie fans, uh, for fans of zombie entertainment, um, you know, people are always trying to. The Walking Dead lately has really fallen into this trap of what weird scenario can we put zombies in that will make them interesting and different, um, like zombies in mud or zombies in paintball uniforms or zombies in i don't know they just have these ridiculous set pieces for all their zombies cargo has like many uh, movies and tv series tries to make its zombies distinct and it really works they have some very odd behaviors i'm not going to tell you what but it's just creepy they're eating brains is not the only thing they do this is a disease that you know killing nearby people is only one of the things that this disease makes you do and it was really kind of gross and and terrifying and made made the idea of this being a disease and an outbreak even more real so it's worth it worth a look if we're gonna segue you also have a story about dead beings i do have a story about the dead but mine is a little a little lighter i suppose it's <laughs> the, the film is coco I think it was late last year it came out, 2017. It's a Pixar film distributed by Disney, animated. It's a it's one of their kids' movies. It yep. was actually seeing this that was my inspiration to hand you off the uh, take-home top three that you have this week. Right on. Uh, it's a fantastic movie. So yeah. the, the quick description is this. Uh, there's this kid who he's 12 years old. Miguel, who loves music, uh, but inside of his family, music is forbidden because one of their ancestors uh, went off and abandoned the family, leaving his pregnant wife behind to become a musician. And so they kind of have the footloose type family where music is forbidden. And he sneaks away, has a hidden guitar that he plays, and he dreams of going to this big festival in the market square and playing and showing the world that he can play. And his parents catch him doing this, leaving with his guitar. They smash his guitar, tell him this is the end. You're going to be a shoemaker like us. He goes to the crypt of sort of the greatest singer, uh, songster in, the, in their town and w- steals the guitar from his tomb which has a sort of magical effect. It's the day of the dead, and he winds up falling into the land of the dead. And the land of the dead in this movie is just brilliantly conceived and uh, brilliantly animated. It's just, it's, it's so, it looks so good. And uh, just the way the sort of world works. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole idea of the Day of the Dead is that if you're dead, but your family in the living world puts your picture up in the shrine and lights a candle for you, you get to cross over into the world of the living for one day and see your family again. So he wants to, he has to get out of the world of the dead. And the only way he can do that is to have a member of his family give him permission to go back to the world of the living and all his relatives he finds in the world of the dead say make it a condition that he can never play music again to let him go back into the world of the living Mm. which he refuses to do so he's stuck in the world of the dead but uh, i'm not going to give the whole story away but it turns out this 
musician looks like that these this great musician is actually the family member who deserted his family and so he goes on a mission in the land of the dead to find him because he knows he won't put the condition that he can't play music to go back uh the music is fantastic uh the story is just this really beautiful story of uh family and familial relations and just the idea of music and uh, i mean it's just it's just got a really nice story it's really well written it's just beautiful to look at like the again i'm going back to the way the land of the dead looks and is animated is just fantastic like i just look everywhere and see the way they've brought this to life and it's just everywhere you look there's something that it's like uh, my your eyes are all over the screen because everything just looks so fantastic it was really nice to see uh, a movie like this that uh, it's an almost entirely latino cast the music is uh, sort of uh, Mexican, uh, you know, folk music. But the the song "Remember Me," which is in it, won the Academy Award for Best Song. This movie won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. It's one of the top fifteen animated movies of all time. It was one of the top ten or eleven movies of last year. And you know, I think it has these things of being it's the highest budget film featuring. Uh, an, a, a high, such a high percentage Latino cast, and it's just, it's this. Uh, it won a whole bunch of awards for respectful portrayal of uh, Mexican culture. It's like that. All of this sort of combines into what is at its core just a really, really good, really fun, and really touching movie to watch. Cool. Uh, I thought it was great. Despite all of those accolades, I don't feel like it necessarily had as much broad mass market appeal as some of the other Pixar entries that it's it's probably not as licensable. It's not as marketable in terms of selling, you know, plates and water bottles and pajamas. So I wonder if it will kind of stay more of a cult classic or if it will become sort of uh, canonical, you know, family viewing the way like cars and toy story and some of those movies have although you're right it doesn't have that sort of marketing of like the pajamas and the costumes and everything i mean it made 806 million dollars so that's a pretty hefty sum for an animated film without that kind of cross-marketing appeal yeah cool well i think you already gave us a fantastic segue should we get on to the take-home top three sounds good to me let's do it So for your take-home top three assignment this week, based on my viewing of Coco, I thought I would see what your all-time favorite or top three animated films for kids uh, would be. Yeah, so, um, you know, we have a bit of a tradition with the take-home top three of giving some long, agonizing description of how we, what sort of methodology we used. So I'm going to try and fast-forward that to some extent because I really didn't have any rhyme or reason. Um, What I discovered when I went to pick my, uh, my favorites was that I had probably 10 that 
were in the running, but a lot of those, surprisingly, I I hadn't seen more than once. Um, so that was kind of interesting to me was that there were ones that I thought were fantastic and I'd loved them, but I really hadn't seen that many times. So I just went with ones that I really, off the top of my head, if I had to pick one to go and sit and watch again, these would be the three. And I, I changed my mind a few times, but I, I narrowed it down uh, and about 20 minutes before we started recording i realized i actually had four on my list so (laughs) So, are we doing a take-home top four no i i uh made the harsh cut and uh iron giant didn't quite make the the uh the top three for me that was in my top four i had to rule out for some other ones okay so i'm gonna sort of put these in order the first one uh is kubo and the two string that would be a clear contender for my list as well yeah i mean i've only seen it once it's it's fairly fresh uh and it it definitely you know gets points for freshness in terms of when i think about these things but man that was a well done amazing movie that you know i i think it's very kid friendly but totally uh adult friendly too in terms of it has some really serious themes and absolutely visually jaw-droppingly beautiful that movie is animated in some unique way that i can't recall so we we used to call it stop motion um although the company leica that does it uses so much high tech it's it's kind of halfway between stop motion and cgi uh what's interesting about the way they did this one is so all of the visual elements that you see are physically created. They're, they're like nine-inch puppets that are poseable and articulated and that are moved, posed by the animators. But the way they film it, because of the way computer technology works now, they actually just do still photos. They don't actually do any kind of video or film or audio at all. So the film is actually just made up of thousands and thousands of still photos. I remembered how unique it looked. And the scale of this production is just unbelievable. They worked on it for years, and the hours, the thousands of hours that went into every scene uh, was just amazing. So for people who don't know, Kubo and the Two String is an original story, but it's set in a fairly traditional slash mythological Japan. It uh, It's about a, a boy trying to, to find his father, trying to save his mother, but it's, it's a story that touches on on family and remembering like Coco, uh, but it has a real sadness. His mother has, you know, sort of sacrificed her sanity and much of her life to to keep her son alive. And as the movie starts, he is taking care of his mother. She is barely clinging on to life and clinging on to sanity. And so it's it's pretty dark for a kid's movie, but he goes on an epic journey. Um, He's a musician and it's got some nice music and, and just an amazing fantasy journey uh i don't want to say too too much about it but wow there's so much to love in that movie yeah i loved it too kubo and the two string is my number three uh my number two i felt like was almost cheating um because although it definitely was sort of a kid's movie it's probably the least kid-friendly and more most adult popular of these picks and that is the fantastic mr fox I don't know. My kids love that movie. Okay. See, because I haven't watched it with kids. I wasn't sure. So this one is, to me, like the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup movie. We take two great things that I love. You put them together and the result is better than 
either one. I love Wes Anderson films, and I love Road Dahl's books, and I never would have imagined how great a combo they would be. It was also kind of cool for me. Um, I loved Road Dahl's books, and I read a lot of them as a kid, but this is one of his books that I just had never read. So it was like getting to discover new content for me, just because it was new to me. And then seeing... Wes Anderson apply the sort of meticulous attention to detail that he does in his live action things to a stop motion animated feature again stop motion maybe that's something for me it's just amazing like the detail in every single little scene is fantastic but the characters and the voice acting in that one is also just off the charts hilarious yeah I think it's the the characters and the voice acting for me that gets me on that one yeah, I think especially uh, Willem Dafoe as the rat. I mean, it's just so perfect. He's It's just such a perfect fit. It, you couldn't, you know, caricature him better as an animal. I think all of the characters, Wes Anderson movies, the characters tend to be so deadpan and so sort of matter of fact in the way they, they do everything. But uh, there's a little more exuberance in this one than a typical Wes Anderson thing. And I, there's just so much great humor, so much great visual humor, and that road doll twisted macabre kind of sensibility and and you get things happening in a kid's story that you wouldn't expect like the main character gets a piece amputated (laughs) and it's just matter of fact and it's funny and you move on that for me was one that i just couldn't help but put in my top three good choice i have no issue with that one as a kid's movie i don't think it at all strays from the uh the assignment as given i would have i would have had more of an issue with iron giant than that one (laughs) although iron giant i think you could describe as a kid's movie. Iron Giant was made for geeky adults, I think. Yeah, we could debate that one. <laughs> but, uh, okay, glad to know that Fantastic Mr. Fox has been accepted. My number one pick for anybody who's talked to me about sci-fi or animation in the last few years, this would not be a surprise. Uh, my number one pick is Wally. Nice. Wally just hits it on so many aspects. The animation, the storytelling... And also just, to me, Wally is one of the best science fiction movies of the last decade, let alone animation. It tells a powerful and really enthralling sci-fi story about where we're going as people. Uh, And I think to couch that in a great, approachable kids movie is just brilliant. I also just love the look of it. I love the, the color and the light, but the main characters The feat of animation that's always amazing to me is when you can animate a non-human object and give it character or personality. That's a great test. And cartoonists will talk about, and animators especially, will talk about the quality of giving motion and gesture and, and how you can you should be able to make just about anything seem alive if you're a good animator. But to take that to the level of a main character, a lead character is amazing and the two lead characters don't even have real faces they still give great performances and when you can build empathy in your audience for something that you've brought to life that's not human that's the accomplishment that wally hits yeah you get all the feels as they say from wally from like cheering for him and rooting for him to being terrified for him and sad for him it's such an emotional journey and and you just get sucked in so quickly one other thing about the animation that i uncovered when i was reading about this so as if it wasn't hard enough to make a very non-humanoid looking robot 
uh, relatable and empathetic. The animators decided when they were constructing Wally and designing him that he was a trash collecting robot and uh, some, for some reason they decided that he couldn't have elbows because that wouldn't make sense. So elbows just would have given him so much more ability to gesture and look human but they said no it doesn't work in the story as a trash collecting robot this this robot wouldn't have elbows he can't have elbows so like they gave themselves another handicap and still worked around it i just thought that was a really cool little detail about how good the animators were that is a fun detail they also uh the sound design recorded more different sounds for Wally than any movie had ever done for a sound effect character. He had something like 4,000 different sounds used in the movie. It's one of those movies that, it's one of those, I don't know, we called them like uh, car accident movies or something like where you can't look away. Uh, yeah. If I stumble across it, I'm I'm sucked in and I'm watching it. Yeah, I love that movie too. And it, it definitely fits the uh, mold that we were looking for. I think it hits less with kids though than some of the other ones. Yeah, it definitely, it's a, a tough sell. I think it's, you know, you need to get kids in the right frame of mind or at the right time of uh, right age or something. Because, yeah, it's, it's a little uh, little bit harder sell. I think the other thing that is just amazing is I think the first, what, like 15 minutes or something of the movie or longer has no dialogue whatsoever. That's also something that's very different and probably a bit of a barrier for, for some kids. But uh, again, it's it's like doing an amazing silent film to some extent it's funny that you picked wally because i saw a funny reference just this week to that movie someone was talking about those movie theaters where you go and you sit in your (laughs) like relaxing lounge seat and they have servers who bring you your food and your popcorn and your drinks was like this is as close to the lounge chairs and wally as i'm gonna get in my life but i'm okay with that yeah yeah oh i i joke about that future state of humans as being just sort of glutinous slugs on floating couches i sometimes think yeah we're just like a generation away from that it's it's not the distant (laughs) future at all yeah one last kind of cool story note trivia about wally um was that the director originally was gonna have when we discover the humans and see that they're just these big fat blobs floating around be literally like almost unrecognizably human that instead of being just really fat people they were gonna just be sort of total glutinous blobs that it was almost like a planet of the apes twist that we're going to find out that they were actually human but we wouldn't actually know that because they would have been so physically distorted kind of a cool idea would have been a lot darker a little more black mirror than uh than (laughs) disney yeah but uh yeah so that was a lot of fun uh and i really now have a a watch list of movies that i really want to see again out of this so i don't know when i'm going to find the time to watch them all but i'm looking forward to it all right, how far out of your top three was The Incredibles? It was right up there. Incredibles and Toy Story were ones that I felt like needed to be there, but I felt like they were kind of the obvious picks, so I, I went with more personal ones. Nice. I love The Incredibles. I always call it the best Fantastic Four movie that's been in, uh, made thus far. Yeah, it definitely pulls on a lot of Fantastic Four, but it's just plain great, amazing, fun movie as well. Second one's out in two weeks. That should be a lot of fun. And have you seen Moana? Moana was really good. Yeah, that'd be a hard one for me to cut from the top three as well. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to like that one as much. They did a very good job. Yeah, I felt like, why am I loving this movie so much about this coming-of-age emotional journey of like a 
12 year old girl but i was totally in for the whole ride yeah no that was that was so well done and i think you know it's it's funny because i hear in my head uh, naysayers saying that it's politically correct that they're kind of going through all these different cultures and but again they did things so respectfully that they avoided all the kind of cheesy offensive stereotypes about polynesian culture and just took all what was cool and interesting about it and uh, lin-manuel miranda's uh, musical score for it is fantastic as well yeah absolutely cool well i guess i'm gonna have to give you an assignment aren't i you are so what is my assignment for the next week So we're uh, continuing on the nostalgia trip for your assignment. I've been watching The Toys That Made Us has some new episodes out, and this is something that I know we've geeked out over together as friends over the years, but we've not really done on the show, uh, which would be your three favorite childhood toys. Oh, nice. So, I mean, that can be a line of toys or a specific toy. Let's just uh, geek out over some cool old toys. I can do that. Should be fun. Okay, that's about it for this week. Thanks for listening. You can catch us every Wednesday at totallysortof.com or in the Podbean app. You can also find us on iTunes and in the Google Play Store. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at totallysortof or email us at hello at totallysortof.com. Even better, we'd love for you to leave a review or a rating. You can do that on our show page on iTunes or on the Google Store. Our intro song is Punk, and it's used uh, by permission from the artist K-Bona Black. You can check the show notes for links to K-Bona Black's music and to some links we'll always put up for many of the things we've talked about. Until next time, I'm Darren Hogan. And I'm Chris McInnes. And you've been listening to the Totally Sort of Podcast. Talk to you later, buddy. You bet, pal.